This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, Moyers and Company, This Week in Blackness, After Show from Networks Radio, Activism from Best of the Left, and Democracy Now. Now, be sure to stay tuned for the most delicious activism opportunity to date. If you're a doctor in this country and you decide to provide abortion as part of your medical practice, you just expect a certain amount of protest and harassment and menace. You hope to escape violence. It's just part of the job. Tonight, we will introduce you to a doctor who's been facing all that for decades, who is undeterred by the extreme violence of the 90s abortion wars and is pressing forward with a new fight. In this country, what we do is we infantilize women. So the woman that comes for a termination of pregnancy, she just must be a completely deluded woman who stumbled into an abortion facility and had an abortion and didn't want it. And so what we do is we persecute the providers. And you'll see that also in natural birth. For 30 years, Dr. Katherine Morrison has been providing abortion care in Buffalo, New York. She's an OBGYN by training, also attending to women giving birth. But now she's embarking on a new endeavor in her field, opening up the country's very first natural birthing center housed inside of an abortion clinic, something that would have been inconceivable just 22 years ago. And tonight, the city of Buffalo, New York, is preparing for a street fight between the forces opposed to abortion and those in favor of abortion rights. Buffalo was one of the major flashpoints of the abortion wars of the 1990s. This is a dead baby. This is a dead human being. After staging successful demonstrations in Wichita, Kansas, the anti-abortion group Operation Rescue found a receptive audience in the largely Catholic area. Do you think reasonable people can sit down and, and settle this issue? Well, personally, I don't believe murder is debatable. The group was even invited to come protest by Buffalo's Democratic mayor. If they can close down one abortion mill, I think they've done their job. But Buffalo was not Wichita. Operation Rescue was met with heavy resistance from pro-choice groups. If we hold the line in Buffalo, then that will have an effect on what happens in Milwaukee and what happens in Columbus and what happens in Schenectady. For two weeks, thousands took to the streets, leading to hundreds of arrests. Patients harassed, clinics blockaded, including one named Buffalo Women's Services. I have a right to walk on the sidewalk! Why don't you go home and reconsider another day? In the wake of this sort of anti-abortion interference, federal law was passed to address it. Blocking abortion clinics became a federal crime in this country today. President Clinton signed a landmark bill which includes harsh new penalties for demonstrators who block access to abortion clinics or who harass patients and workers. Four years later, Dr. Morrison began working at Buffalo Women's Services, a clinic providing abortion care led by Dr. Barnett Slepian, a local OBGYN like Morrison. At the time, Morrison voiced her concerns over safety to the clinic's owner. I said, isn't it dangerous to do abortions? Isn't it very political? And she said, no, not anymore. And I was quite um, naive. And, uh, and it did seem that it wasn't, that it wasn't a huge deal anymore. It was an execution-style killing. 
one bullet fired from a high-powered rifle crashed through the window of Dr. Barnett Slepian's suburban Buffalo home, striking him in the back. Slepian's murder may fit a pattern of attacks that have occurred over the past four years in upstate New York and Canada. They were all doctors, all doctors who provided abortions. They were all, all shot in their residences from outside the residence. We are outraged that somebody would have the audacity and the just terrible gall to come in and do that to another human being. Certainly after Dr. Slepian was murdered, a couple of providers stopped working right away. People don't want to take the chances, and his family paid a terrible, terrible price for, for his courage. Right in the aftermath of him being murdered, I quit because I was, I was terrified. I had young children, my parents were still alive. I, I did not want to die. I, I really wanted to live and be a parent to my, my children and be a, uh, a daughter to my, to my parents. And then after three months, I, two or three months, I came here and I really felt ashamed, you know, that there were people who were doing that important work. And so I, I came back. In the years since Dr. Slepian's murder, the abortion wars have left the streets and entered the state houses. Across the country, abortion rights are being stripped away through legislation designed to shame women, punish providers, and limit access to care. Little by little, hospitals and providers in red states and blue states have walked away from offering women the care they need because it has become too difficult. So because abortion has been segregated because it's been removed from the hospital and because private practitioners either are afraid to do their own terminations because they can't bring patients to the hospital or because they haven't been trained for it they don't know that women have unintended pregnancies and choose to terminate them so it's the same patient who is getting pregnant and continuing a pregnancy and maybe next time getting pregnant and terminating a pregnancy, and next time maybe having a natural birth. These are all the same people. It's our beautiful birth room. It was ending that segregation that inspired Morrison to open up a natural birthing center under the same roof as an abortion clinic. Morrison collaborates with Eileen Stewart, a certified nurse midwife. It's this kind of comprehensive facility, offering women different kinds of care that Morrison and Stewart hope take the stigma from both kinds of services. Stewart has seen an evolution of thinking over the course of her career. I just think that we're moving in a, in a direction where people are thinking about alternatives in lots of ways. Yet both women have found that the idea of natural birth is met in some circles with the same kind of vitriol that abortion care is in others. I think I'm seen as someone who cares for the wrong sort of person and that the other providers are taking care of the good patients and they're good because they continue their pregnancies and they're good because they go to the hospital to have their babies and they have a C-section when they're told to and I'm uh, seen as somebody who's um, has a lesser Practice. But the mission is to give women choices in their own health care. Nobody looks back in their life and doesn't think about the birth of their baby, or quite honestly an abortion is some significant aspect to their life. And being treated with respect and dignity around that, so important. Dr. Morrison is trying to do something that extends far beyond her own clinic in Buffalo. She's trying to upset the conventional wisdom on women's health. What she's after is nothing less than to fundamentally change the way pregnant women are treated in this country, not just by their doctors, 
but by all of us. We get In the 40-plus years since the Supreme Court affirmed a woman's right to an abortion with its Roe v. Wade decision, conservatives and the religious right have crusaded to overturn it, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not. Thanks to a sustained legal strategy in particular, which includes achieving a Supreme Court majority of five conservative Catholic men, all appointed by Republican presidents, they have been inching towards success. This session alone, the court limited health insurance coverage for contraception and made it easier for protesters to demonstrate outside abortion clinics. Meanwhile, several states have already passed regulations that effectively restrict access to safe, legal clinics. More than half the American women of reproductive age now live in states hostile to abortion access. Let me repeat that. More than half the women of reproductive age now live in states hostile to their constitutional right. In Washington, Senate Democrats have introduced the Women's Health Protection Act to counter those state and local restrictions on reproductive freedom. At a hearing this week, voices were heard both for and against the bill. This is the newest tactic in a four-decade campaign to deprive women of the promise of Roe v. Wade. There have been, during those four decades, terrorizing physical attacks, clinics bombed, vandalized and torched, doctors and clinic workers murdered, and clinics blockaded. Today, women's access to abortion services is being blocked through an avalanche of pretextual laws that are designed to accomplish by the pen what could not be accomplished through brute force, the closure of facilities providing essential reproductive health care to women of this country. The legislation this committee is considering is extreme legislation. It is legislation designed to force a radical view from Democrats in the Senate that abortion should be universally available, common, without limit, and paid for by the taxpayer. And it is also a very real manifestation of a war on women, given the enormous health consequences that unlimited abortion has had damaging the health and sometimes even the lives of women. We'll talk about these and other developments now with Cecile Richards. Since she became president of the Planned Parenthood Federation in 2006, the number of its supporters has doubled to 7 million. Before her current position, she organized low-wage workers in the hotel and healthcare fields in California and founded the Texas Freedom Network to champion civil liberties and religious freedom in her native state. She also served as Deputy Chief of Staff to Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Leader of the House. Cecile Richards, welcome. Thanks for having me. An impartial observer looking on mm -hmm. could reasonably conclude that you're losing the political battle over abortion. I actually don't think that's correct. Now, I will say that in 2010, uh, in the elections where, frankly, the Tea Party 
swept into the U.S. House of Representatives and took over state legislatures, and they have had a very clear agenda, which is to, to roll back women's access. But whenever these issues are actually on the ballot, uh, whether in a candidate or even, I'll just give you an example, the state of Mississippi, where uh, you know the, the far right uh, tried to push, uh, and the legislature pushed a bill that would have outlawed abortion in that state. The voters of Mississippi, not a progressive state, I don't think, uh, we'd, we'd say, they overwhelmingly uh, rejected that. If 14 years ago, a third of women of reproductive age lived in states considered hostile to abortion access. Now more than half do. Why is that not losing? I don't think it's the states. I think it's the state legislatures. Uh, I do think the state legislatures have moved dramatically to the right, and not just on women's issues, on a whole ho- on voting rights issues, on a whole host of issues. Unfortunately, uh, a wing of the Republican Party, the most extreme wing, that believes abortion should not be legal, that believes birth control should not be available, are really in charge of the primary process. Is it conceivable to you that your opponents have won the moral argument? That, th- that is, they've convinced enough people in conservative circles that abortion is morally wrong, leaving politicians that you talk about no choice but to go where the voters lead. I fundamentally disagree with that. Um, people, look, I, and we at Planned Parenthood um, talk to voters a lot, talk to the public a lot. Um, people in this country believe that abortion is a very personal uh, and often complex issue. They overwhelmingly believe, though, again, that these are personal, private decisions that women have to be able to make with their doctors, um, with their family, with their loved ones, uh, and that the last thing they want is politicians making the most personal decisions for a family. Uh, That is, again, that crosses party line, that crosses uh, gender, uh, age, and young people in this country can't imagine going back to a time Uh, where abortion was um, illegal and not available. You put your finger on the paradox. Surveys show the majority of Americans believe a woman and her doctor, not politicians, should be making these decisions. Sixty-eight percent of young Americans believe abortion services should be available where they live. Why doesn't that translate into political success? I think it does, and I'll give you a couple of examples, um, but we have a long way to go. i give you that. Um, I, the last presidential election to me was quite interesting. I mean, that was, by all, you know, was going to be a very close uh, election by all counts, but we had two candidates, you know, uh, Mitt Romney, who said he wanted to overturn Roe, that he wanted to get rid of Planned Parenthood, uh, President Obama, who strongly supported women's rights. Uh, we had the biggest gender gap ever. Uh, in polling in a presidential election. And we just saw this in the Virginia governor's race. Fascinating. You know, a, a, a race that I think folks thought was going to be very, very tough, where you had two candidates, uh, Terry McAuliffe, who supported women's access to birth control, uh, Planned Parenthood, Ken Cuccinelli, the sitting attorney general, uh, who opposed basically all of women's rights. That, uh, I would say that election was decided by women. You know, there was a nine-point gender gap for Terry McAuliffe. He won that race by about two and a half points. So it's when women know what's at stake um, and they go out to vote, they can determine pretty much any election in the country. So given that, how do you explain that in our home state? The Governor Rick Perry said that he intends to make abortion a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. He's succeeding there. 
Well, actually, I disagree. He's not making abortion a thing of the past. He's making safe and legal abortion a thing of the past. And I think this is what's very distressing and uh, is that what, of course, the impact of these regulations are disproportionately felt on low-income women, on women who are, live in rural areas of the state. Uh, we're having women now go across the border to Mexico because they can't access legal abortion in the state of Texas. So, um, again, you know, our goal at Planned Parenthood is to make abortion safe and legal and to help women get preventive care that they need to reduce unintended pregnancy in the first place. Unfortunately, Governor Perry is doing away with all of that. When the governor and the legislature started going after women's health care in the state, ending the women's health program, dozens of health centers that didn't provide abortion services had to shut down because they served low-income women and they didn't have the funds to continue. There was a story out of Houston the other day that mm -hmm. there's now an underground railroad uh, for women seeking abortion services. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing is pre-row um, activities now of women trying to figure out um, how to get around the country because there are increasingly states where uh, you may have a legal right to an abortion, but effectively you have no access. In Texas, it's really in some ways the test case for um, all of these restrictions. We are going to, I think this fall, um, by September, when all of these regulations uh, come into effect, we'll see in, in the state as large as, that's as large as the country of France, there will be seven, uh, probably seven health centers left in the state of Texas where women can access uh, safe and legal abortion. Down from what? Oh, uh, dozens. Um, but I, I think the thing that's important, Bill, is that it's, it's far beyond that because the impact is, is certainly on the on ability to access abortion services, but it also has been devastating on women's ability to even access family planning uh, and basic preventive care. I hear you saying, and you and others, that the constitutional right expressed in Roe versus Wade has hit the hard rock of political reality. Is Roe being rendered null and void by politics? Well, we're seeing some states, yes, where I believe the state legislatures are hollowing out uh, the rights under Roe in every conceivable um, way. Uh, I think this court as well is, um, has been more sympathetic to um, those efforts to undermine women's access, again, not only to safe and legal abortion, but certainly to birth control as well, and that's very worrisome. I'm helpless when need less and need less to say I owe you. HB 2613 in Kansas, um, and attached an amendment um, that would require parents uh, and to report miscarriages. Yeah, that makes no sense. Wait, wait, wait. So you have a miscarriage, you have to report, report to who? Yeah. So, so, he, so here's the issue. Here's the sort of the backup issue. Now, this is something that, um, you know, really caught my attention, particularly having had two miscarriages. And there are very different 
different ways in different states and different areas on how miscarriages are reported, um, or what you get back in terms of certificate or things like that. It really depends on how long the feet, how long, um, uh, how far along in your pregnancy you are, how far along the fetus is, on whether or not it's uh, classified as different ways. I can remember here in New York when the first one that I had, I think, was three or four months. Um, and so it's not even um, – it's not – considered a stillbirth or anything like that um, because the fetus couldn't survive outside of yourself, mm-hmm. right? Not outside of the body. And in other states, um, it's considered a stillbirth no matter um, after it's like 12, 12 or 14 weeks. So in, in different states, in different areas, it, how miscarriages are classified and treated are different. Now, in Kansas, one um, of the issues that came up is that um, uh parents actually get or the mother actually gets a stillborn certificate or something that sort of acknowledges that um, the fetus has uh, did not survive right and, it, and it's at varying stages of the of depending on the month you're at right and so there's some issue about this and um, whether or not um, this goes back to the conversation, Imani, on at what point a fetus becomes um, human or viable and when do you classify it as a, as a death or I was very surprised in, in being in the hospital the first time that, um, you know, I had very difficulty actually recovering the remains. It was um, supposed, it was classified as uh, medical waste instead of actual remains, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's all of these sensitivities around that because I can remember being horrified and having a whole fight with the hospital because I was like, this is not medical waste. You know, I, I viewed it as a child, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's all of this sensitivity around that. And so <sighs> Kansas, um, this is Mary, uh, Senator Mary Pilcher Cook, who's actually um, a strong um, abortion opponent um, and has introduced a number of the bills we've discussed on the show previously that has restrict, um, re- attempt to restrict abortion. Um, and this is the legislation that they're pushing that you would have to actually report it to medical authorities. Um, and that's very difficult because sometimes miscarriages happen and women don't know it. Yeah, and also this is just one step further along the path of criminalizing pregnancy, criminalizing pregnant women. I don't know if you recall last year Virginia tried to pass a bill that would require women to report miscarriages to the police. Um, And you're seeing a lot of women being thrown in jail for having bad pregnancy outcomes or for disobeying what doctors view to be the best medical practice for a particular pregnancy. So if a woman refuses to have a C-section, there have been cases where where court orders have been issued forcing women to show up at a hospital so they can get a C-section or forcing women to show up at a hospital to get a particular medical procedure to which they may not consent because, for example, they want to have a home birth or something along those lines. You're also seeing it a lot with the criminalization of pregnant women who are addicted to drugs. We talked about this just the other day where they are throwing, um, when they are using uh, improper medical 
um, analyses in order to determine that a pregnancy or that a pregnancy failed or that a, ch- a, a child was stillborn or that a, a baby died immediately thereafter, immediately after being born, attributing that to some sort of drug toxicity when there's not necessarily evidence that the drug toxicity is actually what caused the, bre- the bad pregnancy outcome. Right. And, and listen, I get it. If this was an attempt, a failed attempt at, um, because there's still a lot we don't know about why, um, certain pregnancies don't go to term in terms of miscarriages. If this was an attempt to let's do some reporting so we can study this and try to figure out what's going on. I think I've mentioned on the show before, there's been an increased amount. Um, there's a study going on now, um, over the next 20 years, uh, particularly for black and Latino women, because there's an increased amount of miscarriages happening um, for women in our generation um, who are miscarrying, right? So if this was an attempt, I would understand and maybe suggest some other language that you can do this. But here's some facts about this, right? So uh, miscarriages happen most most of the time in the first 13 weeks of the pregnancy, which sometimes major- you don't even know that you're pregnant, mm-hmm. right? And so miscarriage can happen, and you didn't even know. Right. So then what what is the consequences of that if you don't report it? And then who do you just call somebody? You know, do you just call a random hospital? Do you call a police? Like who this doesn't make any sense. Right. right? And about 15 percent of pregnancies that we know of end in miscarriage at, at varying stages of the fetus development. Right. So this doesn't really make any sense. And it's also important to note that this le- is the same um, uh, elected official who introduced legislation, the ultrasound bill in Kansas, who also wanted to ban surrogacy for families. This is the same person who wanted to um, um, make sure that, pe- as Imani pointed out, that uh, people that were seeking an abortion, you know, that they get drug tested and sort of all of those things. Right. So th- the intent also is very clear here that this is a way to control uh, women and to control their pregnancies. Right. I'm 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 at a loss because it's if you know science would art would 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 dictate that you can't just go around announcing this every time if half the time you don't know. So if you don't do it, would you be under criminal penalty under the law? Like would they uh, somehow come after you? So let's say you didn't know you had a miscarriage. You find out you had a miscarriage. Your husband gets mad at you about it or a boyfriend or whatever. He then reports you to the authorities. They then could then do something to you because you didn't announce the miscarriage that you didn't know you had but you found out later. Let me give you an example. The um, the bill that was in, there was a similar bill introduced in Virginia um, back in 2009, and um, you know for for women that are in the in a hospital, you know it's reported, it's calculated, and things like that. So it was that a woman had to report a miscarriage, notify um, the authorities. It could be a sheriff's office, a police department, or whatever. This is if they um, had a miscarriage outside of medical attention, right? That they had to report it within 24 hours, along with the information on the remains of the miscarriage. And if not, they would be subject to a class one misdemeanor. Yeah. What? Yeah, I mean this is this is I mean this is what I do all day. My bread and butter is dealing in this legislation, reading this legislation, cataloging this legislation. And it's really astonishing the degrees to which states are attempting to restrict abortion rights in any number of ways, whether it's by restricting abortion at certain gestational periods, you know, 20-week abortion bans, whether it's 
trying to pass personhood laws that would define, basically define um, a, a life as beginning at conception. You know, there's, even with yesterday, with the Hobby Lobby arguments, trying to push back on all of the misinformation and the junk science that's being put forward about how Hobby Lobby really doesn't, doesn't oppose birth control. They oppose certain types of birth control, which they believe are abortion-inducing drugs. You mentioned, you know, science would... According to science, you you might not necessarily know whether or not you've had a miscarriage. But the thing you have to understand is that anti-abortion and anti-choice forces don't really care about science. They care about what their view of science is. J'irai crucifier ton corps, pourrais-je tes punaises et tes ailes embrasser, te mordre en même temps, enfoncer mes ongles dans ton dos brûlant. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories and more of my personal musings thanks so much for your support do you really think that Women's Health Protection Act that was debated this week could undo some of the damage being caused by this onslaught of regulations Absolutely, and I think it's so important. Essentially what the Women's Health Protection Act does is says you have to treat women's reproductive health care and abortion access like you do all other medical procedures, really to try to stem the tide of these extreme bills that are being passed that are creating enormous barriers for women to just access basic legal rights. You heard Senator Cruz call it extreme legislation. He says the State restrictions on abortions are, and I'm quoting him, reasonable and are intended to protect the health and safety of women. He also says it's people like you and your allies who are waging this war on women by supporting unlimited abortion that has sometimes cost women their lives. Well, I just I don't even know where to start. It's it is ironic that he comes from the state of Texas where uh, the restrictions upon women's ability to access, again, preventive care, uh, family planning, safe and legal abortion have never been worse. What we're seeing in Texas is as radical uh, as any state in the country in terms of eliminating women's ability to plan their families. And, you know, I, I would also say to Senator Cruz, it's really important to recognize this is not a partisan issue for women. Um, women, 99% of women in this country, Use family planning. Okay, so that's a news flash. I think something he ought to, he ought to look at. 98% of Catholic women have used family planning at some point. Mm-hmm. So for women, uh, birth control is not a moral issue. It's not a social issue. It is a basic health care issue. It's an economic issue. Um, and women, men, uh, the majority of this country supports Roe. They support women have, being able to make their own decisions about their pregnancies. And they, the, I can absolutely guarantee you what they don't want is politicians making the most personal, private decisions that women and their families make. What is your response to what some of your opponents say, that abortion is vastly different from other procedures and therefore needs higher medical 
standards. Is there any merit in that argument? Absolutely none. I mean, again, abortion is one of the safest medical procedures in the country. Um, and so it is, this is, and I think, it, look, it's something I think we have to talk about, is that um, it is, this is something that has, I mean, one of the most incredible things that I think that has happened since the Roe decision. And I talked to doctors who were around pre-Roe who said, you know, routinely, young, healthy women were dying in emergency rooms across this country simply because they had no access uh, to terminate a pregnancy in a, in a medical uh, setting. Hmm. So, look, we've had politicians admit it. You know, they say that they're for women's health and safety, but they're not. They simply want to close down access to, um, to abortion services. And as Governor Perry said, make abortion, um, in his words, a thing of the past. If the services continue to be closed down, as is happening in Texas, why can't hospitals start taking up the slack, couldn't they offer patients considerably more privacy, for example, than these uh, health centers where there are protesters outside uh, uh, confronting the women? Well, I, I mean, look, I'm very grateful to hospitals that do provide abortion services, and I, I would hope more of them would be. I mean, as you know, uh, many of the hospitals in this country now are owned by the Catholic Church uh, or have Catholic affiliation. Uh, they not only will not provide abortion services, they will not provide a whole host of reproductive health care. And so there has to be in this country um, a public health care system that will ensure that women can get access to the care that they need regardless of religion. And that is becoming increasingly a problem. And not only it's, it's a problem in Texas, it's a problem across the country. Let me ask you this. This hobby lobby decision mm -hmm. gives the owner of a business on religious grounds the power to deny coverage of birth control to right. his employees. Saying, in effect, that the religious beliefs of the owner triumph over the preventive health needs for women workers, capital has religious rights, labor doesn't, where is this going to take us? I don't know. I mean, look, this, is a, this decision, which I know some people have described as narrow, is... Uh, very troublesome. I mean, I think certainly Justice Ginsburg's uh, dissent is correct. This is uh, is full of minefields. I was actually there for the Hobby Lobby argument, and it was stunning to see the lack of regard for women. Um, but from that decision and other decisions that have that you know certainly had the buffer zone decision, you know, it's better to be a corporation uh, today than to be a woman uh, in front of the Supreme Court, and. Uh, I think that the Hobby Lobby decision is just the beginning of giving corporations free license to um, obey those rules and, and laws that they agree with uh, and not ones that they don't agree with. Giving the owners. Absolutely. The, are the managers and shares? The CEOs. That's it's right. the CEOs. That's correct. They will be calling the shots more often. That's, that's exactly right. How could the rights of one CEO you know, or the beliefs, the religious beliefs of one CEO and his family trump the right of thousands of women to make their own decision. Nothing about the Affordable Care Act requires women to use birth control. Um, but as we're already seeing, millions of women are already benefiting from being able to make that decision themselves, to make their own choice about what kind of birth control they'd like to use if they want to use it and to get it paid for uh, and to help plan their families. What do you think will come from the court's junking of the 35-foot buffer zone? Well, we're already seeing in Massachusetts that absolutely, immediately after that decision, uh, eliminating the buffer zone, uh, we had um, record numbers of protesters outside of the following women all the way up to the door of our health center in Massachusetts. Um, these are not 
all kindly elderly ladies um, simply whispering in the ears, and even if they were, it is the right of women in this country to be able to access health care that they need without harassment and without the advice of uh, dozens of people outside their health center. I mean, can you imagine uh, if, you know, if men in this country, uh, and they, before going into their doctor, had to walk through a gauntlet of protesters telling them, you know, whether it's not to get a colonoscopy or just go down the list. It's incredible. I think now we'll see challenges to buffer zones across the country. And um, look, I, it, it's, it's hard not to escape the irony of the enormous buffer zone that the Supreme Court enjoys uh, in front of their court uh, and why we can't afford that same right to women who are simply trying to access health care. I, I just don't understand. Did you ever see that HBO documentary, The Soldiers in the Army of God? Here are some scenes from it. Abortionists are murderers. Murderers should be executed. I definitely felt that the Lord wanted me to shoot the abortionist. We need a civil war that will kill a whole lot of people. Most people who oppose abortion wouldn't advocate that kind of violence. But how do you explain the passion that enters into this debate? Well, uh, look, I think this is a, always going to be a topic where people have strong fe personal feelings. Um, but I do believe the rhetoric that is now, um, that is sort of tolerated, and frankly that we hear from elected officials um, oftentimes um, does encourage people to sort of uh, put women in a certain place, certainly doctors in a certain place. And, you know, it's very tough to, to watch this footage, but I think it's important because, of course, this was why the Massachusetts buffer zone was passed in the first place. This was not simply an intellectual idea. is because women and doctors and clinicians were uh, under enormous personal safety risks. You know, the two and people were murdered there. That's correct. And... Listen, in my eight years at Planned Parenthood, the toughest day uh, was on a Sunday morning when I got a call that George Taylor in Kansas had been shot in his church. Um, uh, an amazingly courageous man who had cared for women um, in a, the most selfless and, um, again, always at risk for his own safety. Um, we can't go back to those days. And that's where, when you ask me, where is this country, that's not where this country wants to go. And we're not going to. Is there a war on women, or has that become a convenient uh, metaphor? It's not a term I use, but in, in some ways the shoe fits. You know, I, I feel like, I don't like to think there's a war on women, but... The evidence is that there is certainly um, within some, certainly some elements of the Republican Party, and unfortunately a lot of the leadership, and a lot of politicians in this country, folks who are uncomfortable, I believe, with women um, being equal in, in America. And, I mean, that's why we can't seem to pass a, you know, we can't pass an equal pay bill. We can't, we don't want to have women access to reproductive health care. Uh, and I just don't think young people in this country uh, are going to let them get away with it. Uh, and that's what, you know, that's my hope, is that it's it's our kids um, and their generation that aren't going to go back to a day when women were second-class citizens in America. Then 
that I'm a second-class citizen. We all know it's true that my baby is dying. So what am I to do? I'm a second-class citizen, crying out to you. I'm a second-class citizen. I'm a second-class citizen. I'm a second-class citizen, crying out to you. I'm a second-class citizen. I'm a second-class citizen. I'm a second-class citizen. I'm so glad to have Andrea Grimes here to discuss uh, what's been happening down in Texas. Uh, you know, I've been following your work for some time, and uh, it's so great to have you on. Welcome. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Now, I don't know, you know, I took German in high school, so I look at this uh, judge's name, and I presume it's pronounced Yerkel. But I may be, I may be mistaken. Judge Lee Yakel is the Yackel. guy. He's a uh, he's a uh, Bush appointee. Actually, he's a Republican appointee in the Western District. Now, uh, he had written a very comprehensive uh, decision on uh, mm-hmm. the unconstitutionality of these onerous laws to close down. Uh, you know, I and, and let me just say off the top, I kind of go back and forth about calling clinics, abortion clinics, or women's health clinics, mm-hmm. um, because I think women's health is an issue, but now women's health has been appropriated in the most terrible way. But look, you know, it's for women's health and also to have a legally mandated procedure. Mm-hmm. And and he had uh, uh, made this decision that all of these onerous laws from, you know, not, now he, he did have a law overturned by the Fifth Circuit about... Uh, uh, admitting privileges, that you still have to have admitting privileges, what seems onerous on its face. What exactly was this decision attending to? Was it like you had to have a janitor closet every three feet? <laughs> well, so so there's a there's been two lawsuits at this point. There was a suit filed last year in federal court uh, that challenged uh, the admitting privileges per- portion of HB2, and it also challenged the restrictions on medication abortions. Um, So the Fifth Circuit has already ruled um, on that part of the law and overturned Yackel's ruling there. Um, This particular uh, ruling that came on Friday deals with ambulatory surgical centers, which are kind of, as you say, they're they're hospital-like facilities. You've got to have locker rooms. You've got to have janitor's closets. You've got to have HVAC systems. You've got to have hallways wide enough for two hospital gurneys. just really kind of millions of dollars um, involved in upgrading or building uh, clinics to fit these ASC requirements. Um, so Judge Yackel struck down that requirement um, across the state um, on Friday. He also uh, specifically um, accepted the McAllen and El Paso abortion cl- clinics in Texas from having to comply with the hospital admitting privileges provision that requires abortion providing doctors to have hospital admitting privileges. So specifically, McAllen and El Paso, doctors there don't have to have privileges. All over the state, uh, you don't have to be an ambulatory surgical center to provide legal abortion care. Now, it- Am I understanding correctly that this is the only instance in which this is required? I mean, if you had a clinic that performs plastic surgery or prostate surgery that you don't need to necessarily have admitting privileges to to a hospital, and you certainly don't have to have a janitor closet every three feet. 
Sure. So, I mean, certainly the state has has some leeway in the ways in which it can regulate all kinds of different medical procedures. Um, but abortion care specifically has been uh, singled out by the Texas legislature, uh, I think because legislators know that abortion providers um, will have a lot of trouble complying with certain aspects of these laws. Um, admitting privileges are difficult to get in rural and conservative communities where hospitals, you know, don't want to have a bunch of picketers out on their streets just because they gave privileges to a doctor. Um, ASCs are tremendously expensive to build, um, and they have very complicated building requirements that don't really increase the health or safety of anyone uh, getting legal abortion care. Um, so it really puts um, an onerous restriction specifically on abortion providers. Um, you know, in ambulatory surgical centers, much was made of the ability of abortion providers to um, do kind of various levels of sedation, mild to moderate sedation. Um, now, a lot of doctors, you know, whether they're doing, you know, gastrointestinal stuff, ENT stuff, they can provide sedation in office. Um, but with regard to abortion providers, you know, the state was singling them out as only uniquely being able to provide these kinds of sedation in ASCs. So it very much kind of disproportionately was targeted at abortion providers. You know, just as a little personal experience, now I live in California, so our, our rules are considerably different. But I, I, I was a jock back in the day, and I had uh, my second major shoulder surgery about two years ago. And I went to a clinic, mm-hmm. and they knocked me out on my ass. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the technology is such that I was, uh, that's outpatient procedure now. Mm-hmm. And I asked my surgeon, do you have admitting privileges to any nearby hospital? And he said, no, we don't need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, you know, admitting privileges are uh, more or less a business arrangement. Uh, hospitals want doctors to have admitting privileges if they're going to bring business to the hospital. So an OB-GYN who does an awful lot of deliveries, um, who does deliveries in a hospital setting as opposed to uh, doing, you know, home deliveries or in birthing centers, uh, you know, uh, that kind of OB-GYN would, would admit many patients to the hospital, uh, you know, depending on their caseload. Abortion providers... Uh, because abortion is so tremendously safe, uh, simply don't have a reason to admit patients to hospitals. Um, and and if patients do need um, aftercare from complications, they're perfectly capable of going to emergency rooms and receiving uh, appropriate treatment there. So, you know, the requirement, the admitting privileges requirement, uh, really is, is an unnecessary hurdle uh, that does nothing really to increase uh, health or safety. I apologize if I jump around. I kind of do a, what I call freeform radio, but uh, <laughs> I, I try to keep it linear, but every now and then I jump around. Now, uh, it, it's true that uh, before Yako came down with this decision that, that Texas was down to, what, a half a dozen or less clinics in the state? Sure. So last week, Texas was at about probably 18 or 19 clinics, um, but had uh, the the full brunt of HB2 been felt on September 1st, uh, Texas would have had a total of eight legal abortion facilities uh, located in Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio. So if you know anything about the geography of Texas, that's basically, you know, only the large cities in the northeastern 
portion of the state. Uh, it would have left, um, according to uh, the University of Texas uh, researchers' estimates, uh, more than a million people uh, living, uh, I believe, greater than 200 miles from an abortion clinic or perhaps greater than 150 miles from an abortion clinic. Uh, but it certainly would have left a, a large, large number of Texans uh, really without access to any legal abortion care. If you miss the train I'm on, you will know that I am gone. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the taco or beer challenge. It turns out hashtag activism is real activism with concrete results in the real world. It can raise awareness as well as money while changing culture and bringing people together internationally, even when the hashtag itself was initially started as a joke. Andrea Grimes, a reproductive healthcare activist and senior political reporter for RH Reality Check, has been watching the Ice Bucket Challenge make its way around and thought, Tacos and beer sound like more fun. So Grimes issued a new challenge via video on Tumblr, the Taco or Beer Challenge. She wrote the following for RHRC, quote, What do ice buckets have to do with ALS? I don't know. What do tacos and beer have to do with abortion? I don't know that either. What I do know is that eating tacos and drinking beer is more pleasurable than getting doused with ice water, and that lawmakers around the country are passing increasingly restrictive anti-abortion access laws, which means abortion funds are now more necessary than ever as legal abortion becomes harder than ever to access, especially for those of us who don't live in major urban centers. Taco and beer, of course, remains as vital to our human happiness as they ever were. The solution is clear. Eat tacos, drink beer, and donate to an abortion fund. Since the start of the Taco or Beer Challenge, the National Network of Abortion Funds has reported a major spike in first-time donors. Celebs like Dan Savage, Martha Plimpton, Sarah Paulson, and more are snapping pics and videos of themselves with a beer and or taco while donating to an abortion fund of their choice. Many are choosing to give funds in New Orleans or Texas where recently passed laws are going into effect. Participating is easy and delicious, and there's no minimum contribution. If you want, you can toss $2 to your local abortion Fund, which you can find at abortionfundnow.org, and you've completed the challenge. Taco or beer challenge.tumblr.com has a submission link, and you can put it up on Twitter where right wingers are freaking out over the abomination of American favorites like tacos and beer being used to fund health care for patients in need. The average caller to an abortion fund receives assistance in the neighborhood of $1 to $200, which means your modest contribution goes a long way. Because the hotlines are volunteer run, 100% of your donation goes to save the person who needs it because this basic, safe medical procedure is singled out by politicians and rarely covered by insurance. So have a taco or a beer or both, ice cream tacos, root beer, vegan quesadillas, all taco and beer-like substances are accepted, and then enjoy angering hysterical right-wingers and their hypocritical need to regulate your bedrooms and your doctor's offices.
We've turned now to major developments in women's access to abortion. Over the past three days, federal judges have blocked a pair of new laws that could have forced the closing of the majority of Texas's 19 abortion clinics in all five of Louisiana's. On Friday, a federal judge blocked a Texas law due to go into effect Monday that would have required all abortion clinics to meet the same standards as hospital-style surgery centers, even those that offer non-surgical abortions with medication and simple early surgical abortions. Texas already requires clinics that provide abortions after 16 weeks of pregnancy to meet surgical center standards. Last week, the controversial rule drew mass protest and an 11-hour filibuster by State Senator Wendy Davis, who's now running for governor. Judge Lee Yackel of the U.S. District Court in Austin ruled the new mandate would place unjustified obstacles on women's access to abortion without providing significant medical benefits. Meanwhile, Sunday, a federal judge in Louisiana issued a temporary restraining order just hours before a new abortion law would have begun forcing physicians who provide abortion services to have patient admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of their practice. This relates to another portion of the ruling in Texas. Judge Yackel wrote two abortion clinics in the state's isolated Rio Grande Valley, one in El Paso, another in McAllen, could be excused from an admitting privileges requirement already on the books in Texas. For more, we're joined by the CEO of Whole Woman's Health, which operates the McAllen Clinic, along with four other clinics, and was a party in this lawsuit. Amy Hagstrom-Miller has been working in abortion care since 1989 and is the founder of CEO of Whole Women's Health. She joins us now from Charlottesville, Virginia, on the campus of the University of Virginia. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Amy. Uh, can you start off by talking about the significance of both of these rulings? Absolutely. Yes, uh, Friday was just a very significant day for us. It's been a long fight and it's been a long year um, just since HB2 was passed over a year ago. But really we've seen this cumulative effect over the last 10 years um, with a new restriction passed, um, making access to safe professional care more and more difficult for women in states like Texas and Louisiana. And so Judge Yackel's decision was a strong decision. Um, he outlined a lot of the things that we've been talking about, about an undue burden for women and specifically women of color and women in rural areas throughout throughout the South who have even higher burdens than those of us who live in the urban areas. And so his decision was very clear, and, and we're very optimistic that the courts are starting to see that these restrictions have nothing to do with women's safety but are about politics. Before we move on to um, the case in Louisiana, Explain exactly what the law would have required and what Judge Yackel said um, he would put on hold. So there's four different provisions in the law that was passed a year and a half ago. Um, the, the most highly covered and the most restrictive are, are the hospital admitting privileges and the requirement that all procedures, even as you said, medication abortion procedures and very simple first trimester procedures be done in basically a mini hospital, an ambulatory surgical center. That is the part of the law that was set to go into effect yesterday that Judge Yackel blocked on Friday. Um, the the Admitting privileges, uh, part of the regulation went into effect last November, and we brought another case challenging that also in Yackel's court. And that case is, is in the Fifth Circuit right now. We've asked for an en banc decision. Um, 
There were two other provisions of HB2, one restricting abortion care beyond 20 weeks, and two um, basically making medication abortion almost unavailable to most women by requiring women to come in for four different visits with the same physician. So all four of those provisions are part of HB2, and they combine to create an almost impossible environment for, one, abortion providers to stay open and, and serve the women in the communities, and two, for women to actually be able to travel and make it to a safe professional provider in the state. Uh, some might say, well, what is wrong with having a clinic that is, uh, you know, hospital level? And the other, why not have doctors have admitting privileges at local hospitals? What are the problems with these? You know, two different things. One is that there, there wasn't a safety problem with abortion care in the state of Texas that these laws were addressing. Abortion has been safely provided for over 40 years in the state in small sort of doctor's office based settings. Abortion, while it is morally and ethically complex for a lot of people, medically it's quite a simple procedure. Um, there are no incisions, the procedure itself takes five or six minutes, and it's very adequately and safely provided in a doctor's office or clinic setting. So this mini hospital setting that requires hallway widths and airflow systems and, um, you know, sort of a much more intricate and involved physical plant is really designed for much more invasive and complicated surgeries like knee surgery or eye surgery or you know surgeries that take three or four hours with general anesthesia which is just not the complexity of abortion and so herein lies the, the problem is that the, the actual cost to build one of those facilities is out of reach for the vast majority of us who serve the women who need abortion care in the state. Talk Secondarily, about, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Secondarily, the, the admitting privileges is another interesting thing. You know, this is the only procedure that requires admitting privileges for physicians. The vast majority of our medical system is delivered outside of that sort of um, surgical hospital setting. There are many physicians who have d private practices in their offices where they're doing minor procedures in their practice, and they're not they're not bringing surgeries into the hospital setting. Um, it's, it's complicated to, to explain really quickly, but hospital admitting privileges are a relationship between the hospital and a doctor that require the physician to admit a certain amount of patients annually. And, and most abortion providers you know, may admit one or two patients in a span of 10 years. Um, and so this requirement it doesn't actually have to do with safety. It has to do with access. Can you talk about your clinic in McAllen, what Judge Yackel's decision in Texas means for the women's abortion clinic there? Yes, um, we are um, making plans to reopen our McAllen clinic. Uh, it, has, it has been um, on Main Street, in, right across from City Hall, in the city of McAllen for years. Um, women have been calling us um, whether or not the clinic is open. The women in the community still need the care. And so we've been managing... Um, trying to you know help women travel north and help women manage manage their health care in the absence of our ability to provide it and so we're delighted to be able to reopen the facility later this week um, we're making plans trying to reach out to our staff and our physicians and try to set up a surgical session as soon as possible um, 
the the phone has been ringing um, the whole time, even when we've been closed and we've been trying to help help those women. And so, right when the law um, was enjoined this past Friday, we began to call some of the women who had called us earlier that week, and um, you know, telling them that later this week we hope to be able to actually see them locally in the McAllen Clinic again. And the number of clinics that have closed since the law was passed, and how many you see might open, like yours. So uh, in 2012, there were 44 facilities serving the population in the state of Texas. Um, that's dropped to 19 at this point. And if the law hadn't been enjoined, we would drop again to six. With this injunction, um, there are many of us that will be able to either stay open, like my Austin office, I mean my Fort Worth office and my San Antonio office, um, and there, my McAllen office will be able to reopen. And there'll probably be other providers that are able to reopen their facilities. Um, hopefully, uh, our Austin office and our Beaumont clinic that we had to close earlier this year, we're looking at reopening them as well. I think the majority of us in the state, especially those of us that are community-based, independent providers, are really watching closely to the Fifth Circuit. As you know, the state challenged um, Judge Yackel's injunction within about 30 minutes of, its, of him issuing it and has challenged it already to the Fifth Circuit. So we're watching fairly closely to see what's going to happen next for us. Uh, finally, we only have, uh, well, we have less than a minute, but talk about the decision that came out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So it's my understanding that that, you know, I'm not an expert in Louisiana like I am in Texas, but it's my understanding that that decision also blocked a very restrictive law from going into effect that would have taken that, that state's clinics from five down to just two, um, which is completely inadequate to serve the needs of the women in that community and throughout that state. My name is Jim. I'm calling from near Seattle, Washington, and I'm calling about the climate change issue. There's solid evidence, facts out there, that the number one contributor to climate change is the animal agriculture industry. And yet, the media, whether left-leaning or right-leaning or central, says almost nothing about this. It's really, really dramatic. And I would encourage everybody to watch a documentary that I saw recently called Cowspiracy which is sort of an expose into why it, is, why it is that nobody, including environmental organizations, are talking about animal agriculture. I mean, it's not even close in terms of what causes climate change. In fact, for all the people out there, if you care about the environment, the only thing you should do is stop eating animals. Sure, you can do the other things. I do. I drive a Prius. But if you really care, you really, really need to stop eating animals, and that's the answer. Until we do as a society climate change is not going to be fixed. Thanks. Jay, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Your previous episode made a call to people to start making voicemails again, so I uh, decided I hadn't actually called in for a while. So secondly, as a fellow lover of analogies, the most recent episode talked about your bicycle as a representation of white privilege. I actually really, really liked the analogy. So, you know, thumbs up, kudos. Any model and analogies included should never be mistaken for the actual situation on the ground. They're just explanatory tools. 
you know, there aren't really, for example, electrons whizzing around the outside of a nucleus. That's just a way to maybe help your mind grapple with the reality, which is much, much, much more complex. So with that in mind, I think this is a great analogy for the purpose of explaining to someone who maybe doesn't understand the idea of privilege or who is initially uh, has a visceral reaction to the idea that there is such a thing as privilege. It's very useful in that situation to explain and kind of open somebody's eyes to, oh, okay, I see what you mean by privilege. It's a difference, yada, yada, yada. If someone thinks that, oh, yeah, there's privilege and I agree, well, no, this analogy is not going to help them, you know, understand the situation better. And then the other reason I like this analogy is because it, it is extendable. I am not a, uh, a bicyclist. I commute by car, but I work for and approve of bicycle-friendly transportation modes because it makes our society better. The fact that bicycles don't have uh, dedicated lanes, that laws that say you know, so they are allowed to be in the travel lanes are not enforced, that they're not as safe on the roads means fewer people bike commute, means your overall walkability of communities and your connectivity in communities goes down. It means that there's more single passenger vehicles on the road, more pollution, more carbon footprint. The fact that there is this differential in treatment, not only is viscerally unfair, and it's easy for someone, even if they don't bike to work on a daily basis, to get how unfair it is and what the difference is, it's also easy to explain why that makes it just not unfair for the bikers, but it makes the entire situation worse for everyone, including the motorists. So, um, as always, stay awesome, and I love the show. Bye, Jake. Hey, Jay, this is Zena from New York. I'm an electrician by trade. Every day, I work in a field dominated by white males. Over the years, I have come to meet quite a few individuals that I consider to be friends. And listening to the show has allowed me to frame my thoughts in a less threatening and approachable manner when I'm speaking to my brothers by trade. I've noticed that in conversations, when the phrase white privilege is said, it's hardly ever taken as is meant. Almost always is heard as an attack. And your last episode was personally uh, important to me because it allowed me to understand how to approach the matter when I'm in a conversation with somebody that I care about and I don't want to hurt their feelings, but I do want them to speak with me about things that are important. I feel as though Wade <laughs> sounds like a lot of my friends. His heart is in the right place, but an attack just won't be tolerated and the conversation comes to a halt. I hope that he heard every word that you said and he actually listened instead of tuning out because it's virtually impossible to continue a thoughtful and understanding conversation that will invoke change if one party refuses to open his eyes to a glaring reality. I feel that you gave me the talking points and analogies that will make it possible for me to have these conversations and speaking about white privilege and systematic racism. 
these are conversations that we need to have. And by ignoring huge chunks of the problem, we just aren't going to get anywhere. I feel that as a woman of color, passion about these matters is not an option. It's an obligation. We all deserve to live free in this country. And I just want it to happen. And on watching the news, it just is obvious it's not the same country for us all. So thank you for your show. Thank you for everything you do. And I, I, I plan on continuing to listen to your show. So thanks again. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And today, I, I, I want to give what I think will be my last comments on this this most recent mini-conversation on privilege and, and the analogy that I found in an article about how uh, being stuck in a bike lane and mistreated by motorists is, you know, analogous to being black in a world built for white people and, and so on. If you missed it, go back a couple episodes. And uh, my, my last comments on this is that I, I want to actually address the core issue here of, of why this conversation started. So I, I, a few episodes back, I played a message from Wade who had called in saying, look, like, I kind of have an understanding of, of privilege, but I've never liked the word. Whenever I hear the word, I'm just sort of turned off by it. And I think he kind of thought a couple of years ago that like maybe I would start trying to use a different word that was less of a turnoff to him and, and people like him. And uh, and I didn't. And so he was suggesting more recently that like you know maybe if you came up with a new term for it, then I could really get more on board with with the whole idea. And I. You know, I didn't address that point head on. Instead, I just, you know, I, I gave the analogy about like, well, here's why the term isn't offensive at all. It's completely innocuous. It, it's as innocuous as stating that the sky is blue on sunny days. It is not something that anyone should be offended by ever. So there's no reason to change the term. And I wasn't confronted with like what the underlying core of this issue was until another listener wrote into me and said uh, lots of things that were not based in uh, sound reasoning, one of which was uh, they started their email like this. When you have to explain 10 minutes why some term is not offensive, then maybe it's time to reconsider its use. It makes little sense to say that it is not an assault if it feels like an assault it is an assault. And that was when I thought, like, well, what if someone took offense to the idea that I said the sky was blue? And they said, but I hate the color blue. Don't say the sky is blue. I, I hate that color. Like, that's clearly not an assault. So the reasoning is faulty. But the point of me bringing it up is that this email forced me to sort of come up with a response to the idea that, no, no, no. We should change that word. If, if people are offended by it, well, then let's just change it. Like, it's not that difficult. That, that was sort of the, the driving push of, of the rest of his email. And so I thought about it. And I thought, like, all right, I mean, let, let's just say for a second I came up with another term. And the, the term I came up with, I'm sure I'm not the first one, is a structural advantage. What if instead of using the term privilege, we use the term structural advantage? Do you really think that all of the people who are either confused or frustrated or angered by the term privilege 
would be totally on board with structural advantage, I have my doubts. You know, it's not the words. You know, when you put it that way and you realize like, oh, yeah, they'd hate that too because the underlying meaning is the same. They're being told that they have an advantage that they didn't earn and they miss the point about like you didn't earn it, but it's also not your fault that you have it. You don't have to feel guilt or blame for it. So they, they feel like they're being attacked. And it's not the words. It's the concept. And the fact that they're not understanding the concept, that makes it feel like an assault. So, you know, I think it's important to, to come up with analogies or different ways of explaining things to try to get through to people because everyone comes to understanding in different ways. So I, I think that what I did laying out an analogy that, you know, like we just heard from Xena, that it actually helps real people in real life have real conversations and get messages across. Like, that's important. But when you're being told by someone like, yeah, that this thing you're talking about, I don't want to deal with it because I don't like your tone. <laughs> I don't like the words you're using. So therefore, I'm going to ignore the concept until you change the words you're using and then I'll be okay with it and then maybe I'll come to the table. Like when someone comes with that kind of argument, it's almost inherently bullshit. But then if you actually dive down, you can understand what's really bullshit about it. It's strikingly similar to respectability politics. Another thing that, you know, it's a zombie issue that comes up over and over again that has been proven for decades to also be bullshit. The idea that, you know, well, it's not that I don't like black people. It's just that I don't like that they act like black people. So if they just pull up their pants they wouldn't have any problems in the world. And, you know, not only is that, I mean, should be obviously wrong, but it's been shown over and over again that no matter what stratospheric uh, success stories we have, you know, a, a black person rises to be any height of respectability, president even, they're still treated like shit. So, you know, the idea that if they would just do this, then it would be okay, or then I wouldn't mind them so much, or whatever the person is saying. It, it's not much different from saying, like, well, if you would just change the words you're using, then I'd be willing to have a conversation with you. Well, first of all, there's nothing inherently wrong with black people, so you shouldn't be inherently racist against them, no matter how they're acting. And secondly, there's nothing inherently offensive about the term privilege, so you shouldn't be offended by that either. And I shouldn't have to change, you know, whether or not my pants are pulled up or the word I'm using to get you to be willing to have a conversation with me. The person here who has the problem is the one who thinks that saggy pants is inherently a bad thing and a, a distinguishing mark of an obvious criminal or the person who is confused by the term privilege and is offended by it when it's as innocuous as saying that the sky is blue. The confused person is the one who needs to get their thinking straight, not the one who is just trying to live in the world and is being oppressed by society or the one who's using an innocuous term, inadvertently offending confused people with it. So there you go. Those, those are my thoughts on, on what I realized later was actually the core of the issue. You know, analogies and understanding and, and you know, trying to weave interesting methods of communication to get through to people is important and valuable understanding the underlying elements of people's thinking and why they're saying what they're saying is, I think, equally important. It helps us understand where a person is coming from 
and thereby helps guide the way in which we choose to communicate with those people. If you have any further thoughts, I would love to hear them. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. We're on a campaign right now. Need about 700 more reviews on iTunes, uh, probably less than 100 on Stitcher, and uh, it's going to be very helpful. Take two minutes out of your day, help promote the show by uh, leaving five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, or by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft, which is one of the easiest and best ways to sort of help us spread the word every time we want to put out a message, we can send it right through to your followers and it's it's like magic, so check that out. Uh, stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past